You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. And here we go again, but this time it's 2017. All right, adios 2016, you're in the rearview mirror, and, uh, but nothing's really changed man we got more of the same kind of podcast coming out in 2017 uh including the one that uh i'm gonna share with you today i just had a conversation with a really good new friend of mine ben harshine he is the owner him and his wife are the owners of huntera maps and uh if you guys haven't had the opportunity uh to go listen to the podcast i did 100% about Huntera, make sure you go check that out. But today, we are going to be doing a Hunter Profile with Ben, one of the owners, and uh, we are going to be talking about his 2015 and his 2016 season. Uh, We're going to be talking about a buck that he chased for those two years um, and some side stories that go along with that. We're going to be talking about his most recent um, harvest that he he shot a buck with a muzzleloader actually on New Year's Eve and I spent New Year's Day uh, taking pictures of that buck with him and uh, yeah so we're we're going to talk a lot about you know we, we a little bit about his transition to this new farm um, and then talk a little bit about maybe some adjustments as well that he has made over the you know over the that that year that he's hunted there. So two years of experience with this property, the deers that he's chased. I'm repeating myself. That tells you right there that uh, I'm excited, but everybody needs to listen all the way to the end of this podcast, because we're going to be giving away a free trail camera from Exodus and we're going to be giving away a free subscription of Deer Lab for an entire year. I think it's, um, they call it the Fawn Series. But two prizes. We're going to pick one winner. And uh, you need to listen all the way to the end of this podcast to uh, find out how to win. But uh, that's just me ex- you know, extending the gratitude for all the listeners out there. And uh, thanking you for... An awesome 2016, and here's to 2017, not only with a chance for you guys to win uh, a pretty cool prize, but uh, we're going to kick 2017 off with a badass podcast. But before we get into 2017's first podcast, I talked with John Livingston, one of the owners of Deer Lab, and he talks about how easy Deer Lab is to use. 
Deer Lab is super simple. We basically give you tools to drag and drop your photos from an SD card or from your computer directly into Deer Lab, and we automate a majority of the process. We automatically sync with your w- local weather station and bring in weather data that trail cameras can't capture. We also uh, bring in um, automatically organize all of your photos by date. We give you tools as far as filtering and all that, but it's really super simple. Um, as, as long as you can drag and drop or select photos from your computer, you pretty much know how to use Deer Lab. If you guys want to find out more information about Deer Lab, be sure to visit DeerLab.com slash nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers. Read up on Deer Lab. And if you want to, you know, give it a shot, that URL DeerLab.com slash nine fingers. If you sign up through that URL, you will get a free 30 day trial period. Upload your trail camera pictures to it, play around with it, and uh, you will instantly see um, patterns of maybe some of the bucks that you've been chasing over the years. So give that a try. Now, let's get into the first podcast of 2017 with good friend and owner of Huntera, Ben Harshine. All right. So we just, me and Ben were doing a little bit of talking. And by the way, I'm on the phone right now with a new good friend, Ben Harshine. How you doing today, Ben? Doing well, buddy. How are you? I'm doing good. And um, I I always kind of open the show with now on the phone, it's, you know, so-and-so from so-and-so. How are you doing today? And <laughs> and Ben's like, hey, man, we know each other, so it's not like we need to need to introduce each other. So, Ben, <laughs> I'm going to I'm just going to go ahead and say your wife makes a good sandwich. Awesome. <laughs> I'll, make sure, I'll make sure to 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 send the compliments to her. Good. Good. <laughs> so, uh, me and me and Ben spent almost the entire morning and part of the afternoon yesterday taking pictures of a buck that you recently shot and um and we're going to we're going to talk a little bit today about you know, a variety of different things, but one, one thing in particular is is that buck and, and how Ben grinded this season. But before we, before we kind of get into that and me and Ben talk all the time, how is, how, how was 2016 for Huntera? Uh, man, it was, it was awesome. We, we've, uh, we set some, some pretty lofty goals personally with what we were trying to accomplish this year. And, and, uh, uh, proud to say that we've met them. And in general, um, we've got a, it, Huntera is a small business that, um, uh, my wife and I started literally from the ground up. I, I posted something not too long ago, um, saying that we were not a business that chose to take any sort of loan or, 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 or outside financial, uh, help. And that was our decision. It's not that, the companies that uh, grow that way are—it's it, not that it's wrong at all, but it's just the the way that we chose to grow organically and, and kind of go all in with, with our own uh, with our own finances and whatnot. It it, uh, it it's been really rewarding to to uh, know that all of the kind of risky decisions that we've made are are, are starting to pay off. Um, things are going strong, and and we're looking forward to staying on the gas. 
So I got a question for you because, you know, I don't know in two, three years, what, what this podcast is going to do. But for me, there's a, you know, there's definitely a possibility for me to quit a secure full-time job and take that leap into the unknown, so to speak, to, to do potentially do this full-time you and your wife kind of had, when you started Huntera, you, you guys were, you know, you had to make a decision. It was stick with the norm and do something that's safe or, or, break away from the norm and do something that it may be risky, but much more rewarding. Talk to us a little bit about, about that. Sure. Well, I'll give a, a quick background of, of kind of where I came from. When I graduated school with a, a mapping degree, uh, I moved to Washington DC area and I worked as a contractor for the government making maps and doing different uh, geospatial analysis projects and Really, anything that had to do with geography and, and maps is, is what I was involved in. And I uh, eventually started to work at the National Counterterrorism Center, which was um, a phenomenal experience, uh, basically a fusion center of, um, of different agencies that work towards fighting uh, terrorism throughout, uh, assessing terrorist threats and, and thwarting them uh, throughout, the, the, throughout the world. So it was an amazing experience. What and and when I when I first started there, Ontario was um, really non-existent. And then as uh, once I started to to make some maps as a almost a, a hobby, and and I started to see the potential of it growing, uh, I, I found myself becoming less focused on this great career that I had and more focused on kind of the vision and growing the brand of Hunter and, and just dreaming about where it, where it could take me. Uh, just the demographics of Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia, M Maryland area is, um, is very busy. Yeah, one of the busiest, uh, you know, worst places for traffic and commuting in the United States. Uh, and being that it's so large, it's not a really good, strong sense of community. So, we found ourselves, my wife and I, really becoming more attached to Huntera and less attached to the lifestyle that we had there in the city. And um, it, it got to the point, and you and I were talking about this the other day, where it was kind of like a tipping point. Um, there was a moment when we realized, okay, if we crunched the numbers and we lived somewhere else that was more affordable, um, something that made more sense from a business perspective, what, um, we could maybe... Well, we're going to be able to dedicate 100% of our time as opposed to 60% of our time or 50% of our time towards growing this business. And, and we're going to squeeze by and, and, and we're going to see where it takes us. And um, you know, we had goals of family and whatnot. We didn't have any kids at the time. And, and we decided, you know what? Life is too short. And I, I have always kind of lived by this mantra that um, life is flying by and, and it's – um, I guess I've just always been scared of, of not going after something that mattered to me and, and having a great quality of life. And, and uh, uh, even though I'm, I'm 32 years old, which a lot of people say, well, I mean, it's all relative, but maybe I'm not that old, but time is moving and I'm, I, I recognize that. And we decided, you know what, we're going to go after this, uh, move to the Midwest. For my very first time, I went out there um, on a hunt there was something inside of me that almost felt like I've always belonged there. And it wasn't just because of the big white tails, uh, the community, I think just in general, the landscape and the, and the, the habitat is beautiful in the Midwest. Um, and, uh, you know, when we, when we came out here, 
we soon realized that man, this was an awesome, uh, um, awesome decision that we made. And it was not, it was a very, very bumpy road, um, to, to get here. It really wasn't that glamorous of, of a trip to be honest with you. But now that we're settled and we're, we're rolling, things are great. And, um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm really hoping that, um, soon enough you'll be able to do the same. Um, I know you really want to, and, um, <laughs> I'm a big fan of the underdogs that, that, that go after something. Perfect. Well, I tell you what, for, for everybody that's listening right now, you can catch kind of the, the whole story of Huntera and, uh, Ben's kind of transplant from, uh, the DC area to Iowa on the, Huntera podcast that I did at the beginning of 2016. So I got to do a search for it and you'll find it. But today I kind of wanted to talk. Let's talk. Let's let's talk hunting. And I want to talk about one piece of property in particular that you hunt. And in that particular piece of property are a whole bunch of different sub stories that I'd like to touch base on. And um, I guess the, what what I want to do first first is I want to talk about when you moved to when you moved to Iowa you finally found this property that you ha- you got access to hunt being someone who's into mapping and land what was what was some of the first things that you did after you got got this property and decided hey and I'm I'm going to be hunting here now yeah so uh, right away whenever I um, I, I was connected uh, to this specific property that I'm on through a, a, a friend slash client here in Iowa. And um, right away when I saw the aerial, you know, he basically said, hey, do you want to get in on this lease? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a lease that we had access to specifically for bow season. So, yes, I'd like to have it for the entire season at the time, which had been last year. But in general, um, once I saw the aerial, it was a, it was a no-brainer. Um, that it was going to be a very uh, huntable farm and, and an exciting farm from a strategy perspective because it's got a lot of diversity between cover, timber, uh, there's a creek that winds through it, uh, and a lot of terrain change. And the terrain uh, the terrain aspect is really what I cut my teeth on hunting out east uh, where there really wasn't a lot of agricultural, I didn't hunt in an agricultural area at all. It's basically big timber, big woods. So terrain was, you know, um, terrain makes a property hunt larger. There's literally more surface area and there's uh, more strategy that, that, uh, you, you can kind of dive into. So this, this property checked all of those boxes. It's, uh, it's a little over 300 acres. Um, but there is a lot of CRP and, and, uh, for, People hear CRP all the time, but there's different programs that um, and habitat types for that, that's lumped into CRP. Some of it is the really thick, nasty switchgrass, big blue stem, Indian grass, the big native grasses that we kind of know as CRP. And then there there's a lot of this farm over over 90 acres, close to 100 acres, is really shin high, um, worthless from a whitetail perspective. Uh, CRP. It's basically strictly for erosion control, which takes that 300 and you know 40 acres or so down to maybe about you know 200 uh, huntable acres. Okay, so that kind of paints a little bit of a picture of the ground that that I'm on. Right. So, but it's not just a 
a hunting farm, right? I mean, it. Um, talk to them how this is also an active farm from a livestock and agriculture. Sure. Standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it used to be in row crops. It, it used to be farmed, but being that it's so rough, uh, and the landowner opted to just go for to enroll it into the CRP program about a uh, decade ago. Um, so it's been in CRP for a while. But uh, there is cattle that is pastured in the timber um, throughout the summer, spring and summer. And uh, thankfully, this specific cattle farmer that has his cows there. Um, he prefers to, and I'm not a cow farmer, so people that are involved in cattle farming are probably going to say, man, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But my understanding, the, the he likes to get his cows out before they calf uh, in the late summer, early fall, so he doesn't go have to go diving deep into the timber. And it's a pretty rough, nasty farm oh, yeah. and a lot of nooks and crannies. So uh, the cattle come out uh, right basically about a month before archery season. Um and all of the timber, except for basically one, one kind of rounded, deep draw that I call crater. Uh, that's all the other timber is pastured with cows. So um, it's it's kind of thick, but it's it's not as thick as if the cows weren't there because they're eating everything they can inside. So um, in the summertime, I don't really get many pictures. It doesn't seem like it holds at least mature bucks. I mean, a lot of does, uh, will tolerate the, the cows, but, uh, the farm transforms into a fall hunting property and a rut farm. Uh, th there's no doubt about that. So, uh, it's kind of exciting to see what, what will show up, uh, in, in the early fall. So talk to us about maybe a little bit more in detail about that transition. You're, you're hunting a property with active cattle, in the area that you do a, a majority of your hunting, what ha what specifically happens to that property after the cattle are removed? Um, well, I mean, aside from just the cows, when, when they when the cows are removed from the property, um, honestly, it, it seems like it kind of coincides with. Um, it seems like it kind of coincides with the switch for a whitetail summer. You know, like we talk right. about mature bucks having a summertime uh, uh, core area and, and, and the, you know, where they're basically feeding and bedding uh, not far away from each other, growing their velvet, uh, you know, beefing up for the fall. And then uh, once, you know, the, the you know, the, the, the light starts to decrease during the day and, and the fall starts starts to come – sometimes deer will they'll they'll move to a different core area for the fall where, where where they will rut and maybe stay into the into the winter time so not all bucks do that but it seems like uh when the cows come out um being that there's not that many deer on the property um although I'm, with the amount of does that i've been seeing i'm, I'm kind of second guessing that now um it seems like it's kind of a, a nice vacant relatively vacant area for some some deer to uh, to 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 live at, so that's kind of seems to be the transition I've seen over two years. So you have, you know, you run a lot of trail cameras throughout throughout the summer on this piece, mm -hmm. and you know, me and you had this conversation earlier um, this fall when a buck that you had history with last year just wasn't showing up, wasn't showing up, wasn't showing up. 
and boom, he shows up again. Now, did the, the time that he showed back up on camera, did that coincide with the cattle remo- being removed from the property? Um, not immediately, but uh, I think it. I think that he definitely came because those cows weren't around and then he stayed. Um, that's two years in a row now. So the deer that I'm, we're talking about, I nicknamed pork. Uh, for those that haven't heard the story of pork, um, the, uh, so the very first time I hunted Iowa and I was on this farm and it was the uh, second day of October. My parents were actually, at my house helping uh, we were working on the basement remodeling the basement of the, the new house that we bought here and um, one evening I had a really good wind to hunt a you know my first hunt in Iowa and my I, I, I wanted my dad to come with me he, he was here obviously he didn't have a tag but he wanted to come and we sit in the, sit in the tree together this is the guy that introduced me to the outdoors and and raised me hunting um, and his nickname is pork. So, so we're sitting, <laughs> which is another story in itself, but, uh, but anyways, my dad and I are sitting there and, and, uh, uh, we're watching a couple of does come out to, to, uh, one of the food plots we're sitting over and, uh, immediately started hearing a deer just destroying a tree. And, and after he kind of came out from that, I, 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 you know, laid my eyes on him and immediately knew knew that uh, this was a deer. If he was going to come by, even though, um, even though I this was my first hours sitting in Iowa, and it's been a lifelong journey to to get here and hunt. Um, if he was going to come by, I was no doubt going to shoot him. And he's just a big, high ten, uh, fully mature deer. Looks just a, he has a huge body and uh, just a just a beautiful white tail. Um, not a I, you know, a, a mega giant by any means, but a very solid deer. And, uh, anyways, he never came in range and because of how big of his body was and being that my dad was sitting with me and we saw him together, my first sit, I gave him the name pork and, and that was encounter number one. Um, and now the, one second ahead. here. Yep. Um, for the listeners, this was your first encounter was last year. Describe I mean, from an age class and maybe an antler antler size, what are we looking at so they can visualize? Yeah, so so in my opinion, uh, it gets very difficult to look at a deer if you don't have any history with them and say, oh, he's six, seven, eight years old. But I think it's pretty – it's relatively um, easy to tell the difference between a three-year-old and a four-year-old and then a four-year-old and a five-year-old. Not looking at this deer and after all the pictures with them – Last year, guaranteed he was at least five, if not older, uh, which would obviously put him at six plus this year. And his rack last year was, uh, I would say, right at 160. And this year, he probably put on another five inches not, um, um, and probably right at one, I'd say, mid-60s. Um, okay. So, you know, he would be my largest scoring buck to date. I'm not a big fan of saying my best buck. You know, we see it all the time. Oh, this is my best buck. And I, I don't look at a deer simply by score being and, and that that automatically makes him the best you know um from a scoring perspective he would have been the largest deer i've shot um but regardless uh i moved to iowa looking for a chess match with a white tail and, and building history with them and and little did i know that that night was the first of many chapters with this deer so 
So before we get into the story of pork real quick, um, before the 2015 season started, um, you got access to this piece of property. Did you put in any uh, food plots before the 2015 season? No, I, I, I have not. Um, growing up in Pennsylvania and the specific property that uh, I, my dad and I always had access to, the landowner wasn't down with any sort of habitat improvement. Um, in fact, he really wasn't quite down with shooting too many does or anything like that. So um, we were hunting the property raw. And um, aside from that, uh, I've helped some of my buddies out in the Midwest here uh, plant food plots, but I never really dove in and managed the farm myself going going into 2015 and, and planting food plots. So 15 and and, uh, and season 16 were my really my two first years. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was awesome. It was kind of an, another dimension and another part of the strategy to, to, you know, how I'm going to, you know, intercept a deer. Right. All right. So now kind of mixing this all in with, and I want to talk about, uh, 2015, did you have any more encounters with pork? Um, and, and maybe if you did, what did you, what did you learn in 2015 about how the deer use this property? Mm-hmm. Man, um, I'm going to try to not be so long-winded here, even though if I start rambling, tell me to <laughs> relax. But anyways, uh, so we'll kind of start with the very first trail cam picture I saw, uh, I've got of him. The, the, the first night, we, we, I saw, um, I've known of this deer. We saw him. My dad and I saw him, gave him the name Pork. And then a handful of days later, he hit this one scrape, which turned out to be one of the main scrapes of the property, I found out after, you know, giving it a season and realizing there's a lot of scrapes that pop up throughout the property, but this is one of the main, you know, one of the main communication hubs. Uh, he appeared there October, uh, October 10th at 1030 at night. He hit that scrape, and then I really didn't get many pictures of him. I'm trying to think maybe a handful of pictures on that specific scrape the rest of the season, although I got pictures of them scattered throughout. Um, that season, uh, I encountered this deer six times, and that was basically from October 2nd uh, to, I believe, the bow season ended last year, December 4th or 5th. I think 4th, and then the shotgun season came in the 5th. So from October 2nd to, to December 4th, you know, two solid months, I ran into this deer six times. Uh, and the closest opportunity I had with him was on uh, November 11th. It was the day that I was, my dad and I scheduled to go to Kansas. And um, I was, I was kind of moving stands around uh, pre-rut and, and then into that first week in November trying to find him. And and something kind of rang, just just um, lit up in my mind. Okay, man, I I've seen I've got pictures of him coming off this one specific ridge, and uh, I never really hunted that close to that ridge in the timber. I was on the edge with the plots and whatnot. But when I dove into there, it would have been the morning of November 11th. I uh, immediately saw him, and he was with the doe, and I, I grunted him over. And it's funny because you talk about the terrain and how these deer use the terrain and everything, and he jumped right over this deep draw that only a, a big white tail could do. I mean, he came right over, 
he didn't use the path of the least resistance. He used the, the, the straight path. And, and, uh, anyways, he disappeared, he dropped down into this ditch and he came back up and it was, I'll never forget. I saw his rack, you know, coming up, up, uh, up the hill before I saw his body. And, um, uh, I got to draw on him and, and, uh, he needed about three more steps and, and he just, that sixth sense kicked in and he didn't quite feel comfortable. He knew something wasn't quite right there. So, um, I did not get a crack at him and he kind of took off. And, and then soon after I had to pack up and, and head to Kansas with dad. Um, fortunately that I think is probably right there. One of the first strikes against me of why I didn't have a better chance of killing this deer because I was, I left right when he was the most vulnerable. There was nothing that I could really do about that. Cause I wasn't going to skip out on a hunting trip with my dad, but, um, that's strike number one against me right there. Right. So, so, when when you came back from Kansas and checked your trail cameras in 2015, was was he still around? Um, when I came, yes, absolutely, yeah. He so he was he was still around, and um, let's see, that was the first that would have been the second time I laid eyes on him was uh, November 11th. Came to draw on him, left for Kansas, came back. Uh, random pictures of him and uh some daylights so i knew that he was around um wasn't quite sure where he was specifically bedding or, or living and being that it's the rut it's it's kind of a crapshoot you know I, I don't think they really necessarily have a, a very definitive core area that they stay in the whole time um but we can talk about that from what i encountered this year um once i came back um we i actually stayed for thanksgiving um typically we travel, but I was able to basically continue to hunt Iowa from that third week of November on through into early December. That was, uh, that was awesome because it was kind of the latest I really ever hunted. And I heard a lot of people talking about, man, you can still encounter some big, big deer late in November. And, uh, I ended up ran, running into him four more times between that third week and December, uh, 4th. Um, it just seemed like every single time he was one step ahead of me, um, the, the main area I was, was hunting him on was what I call the North face. And it's just, a uh, it's, it's an awesome bedding area, really, really thick, a lot of cedars and, and brush. But then the, ter- the way the terrain is, it's just really hard to access a hunter from a hunting perspective. And even from a predator perspective, I, I, I guess it, it's just, it's just a kind of really secluded, safe place for them. And uh, I was hunting, like, say, the top end of it and then the creek bottom at the, at the bottom of it. And, and I would see him cruising the north face for does often. Uh, and then later on into uh, December, the last few times I encountered him was, was back on that food plot that, that I originally saw him on. Um, it's just if I was hunting the southeast end, he came out in the northwest end and, and vice versa. Um, so saw him other times and just never did get a, get another crack at him. And then, then shotgun season hit, right? Yeah. Shotgun season came. And, uh, uh, this year I, that, that year I did not have access to the farm after that early archery season. The shotgun came, muzzle loader came. There were some other people hunting the farm, uh, uh, for muzzle loader. In fact, I, I set the blinds up, uh, for him and, 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 um, there was, there was three big deer on using that property that year, and they, they ended up killing a, another one that I call Bruce Lee. I had an amazing encounter with this deer. Um, just a, just a, 
stud. Uh, he he was stout and his rack was uh, tight, heavy, and he had a lot of points. I don't, I don't even really know what what he'd be considered, but um, yeah, they they laid him down in muzzleloader season, and uh, it was kind of unknown whether uh, uh, Pork was was really uh, uh, around anymore, and uh, I didn't necessarily have many. I guess regrets. Um, I, I tried really hard to, to, to kill him in the 2015 season. It just never, uh, it never worked out. He was always one step ahead of me, and I, I was, I was fine with that because I, I realized these, 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 these uh, older deer, these bigger deer out here are, are that for a reason. They're survivors and they're smart, and and um, you know it was just basically setting up the 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 the, the history that I really came out here for. So. So your 2015 season ended, right? Yep. And you still had access to this this piece of property. What were your goals as far as I shouldn't I guess this is going to probably be another long answer from you, but that's what we want. Uh what were your goals leading into 2016 and what kind of um, I know you planted food plots, but talk to me about the decision to put the food plots, where you put them, what to plant, um, and did you do any type of uh, any other property improvement uh, to learn this property? Like, what did you do to put yourself into a better position to maybe have a you know a higher in higher uh, higher statistics of harvesting pork? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I didn't really do any habitat alterations aside from adjusting the shapes of each of the food plots. Um, and actually I, I added one. So last year I had three food plots. They were all, um, basically rectangular or oval in shape. Uh, each of the pockets that they were in, um, it just naturally kind of looked like, okay, this is where I'm going to put a food plot and it's just going to fill up this space. And I didn't really think about how it would hunt as much as I did after that season. And, and hunting over those plots, and again, this is me basically being a rookie when it comes to food plots. Uh, um, I learned a ton about how the deer accessed and decided the where they were comfortable feeding, and that led to each of the plots this summer being altered in shape. Um, instead of the the the, the blocks, um, I went more for a long, skinny shape. Um, some very strange shapes. One I called the catapult. Uh, one I called the wishbone. One was a hor- one was a horseshoe. I mean, they all kind of became named after um, the shapes of what they look like. But my goals were to um, try to get deer into better shooting opportunities instead of putting them out 60, 70 yards in front of me and just all where they could just basically stand there and feed. And I'm not going to be able to shoot them with a bow. And also from an exit perspective, um, it was really difficult to, to be able to get out of there without spooking them. Um, this year I decided, you know what, I'm going to change the shape of them and see how they hunt. Um, and, you know, I kind of have mixed feelings about whether that was advantageous or not um, this year. I definitely saw an improvement as far as deer passing me, but uh, the shape change and the and what I planted threw them for a curve, I think, until it got late. Um, so last year I paint, uh, um, I hired a guy out to plant 
to drill, no-till drill soybeans in each of the plots, uh, one-acre plots, and um, they came up like agriculture, I mean, commercial agriculture fields. It was an amazing stand of beans that I had basically into the, into the winter um, until they basically just got eaten out. This year, I decided, you know, I'm going to take these long strips, then I'm going to cut them in half do half grain, half green to have a, a different utilization period of when the deer are going are gonna to hit the plots. Um, but I didn't drill them in. I just broadcasted them myself. I wanted to try to save some money. And I just broadcasted them, you know, and tilled them up with a um, four-wheeler drag and whatnot. And, and it just definitely didn't – I didn't get the germination rate that, that I wanted, especially out of the soybeans – um, so I had an inferior set of food plots aside from these brassicas that I planted. Um, and that kind of leads into, okay, have these deer, I mean, obviously they've seen corn and soybeans their entire lives, but have they seen turnips, sugar beets, radishes? Um, this deer herd, I'm not quite sure whether they saw that over the past handful of years. So, um, at first it kind of seemed like, man, it, they're really not using it, but but those plots really don't get that good until we have frosts. And as you know, in November, it's, it was really warm. We only had a couple minor frosts. It really never froze the ground and never changed the chemical composition or the sugar rates of, of these, uh, these brassicas, which would, which make them palatable for the deer. So I know we're getting, I'm getting way deep, but I'm basically saying that I tried to make improvements with the plots this year and adjust, um, there was definitely a change in how they use them. I'm going to keep some of the things I did and I'm going to change some of them next year. Yeah, yeah. So kind of fast forwarding just a little bit, but for this 2016, what was or has been their reaction to this new food that you introduced into the area, like the brassicas and the sugar beets? Yeah, it's, I've heard of people saying that it'll take a couple years for, for their deer herd to figure out what they are. And then once they do, know what the brassicas are then they and they and they realize that they're delicious and good for them they'll pound them one of the reasons there's some benefits to to when you plant brassicas and and i was explaining this to my dad the other day because he doesn't you know we, we weren't in the food plot game he was thinking brassicas is one specific plant well it's a it's a type of plant it's like saying grain is corn and soybeans and sorghum uh brassicas is turnips uh, radishes, sugar beets, kale. Um, th- those are, those are examples of what brassicas are. And when you plant them, you get a higher, uh, you get a larger tonnage, which basically means you get more bang for your buck, especially in small areas. You're providing literally more weight of, of food, more mass of food for, for your deer. Um, one acre of soybean can get annihilated pretty quickly if you've got a decent amount of deer come in, especially late season. Whenever uh, maybe you know if you hunt a property right and you don't pressure them, you're actually just going to draw more deer in, especially if they're feeling comfortable. They can wipe out a, an acre of beans pretty darn fast. So uh, I said, you know what, I'm going to go for some turnips, radishes, this nice mixture that I got, and and uh, they're also easy to plant. So. Uh, I didn't really have to do much soil prep at all, even though my, my friend Casey came out and we, we used his Ferminator to, to cut up the ground more because it was CRP ground and it was compacted. Um, brassicas, I've heard people say or joke that they'll grow on concrete. So you basically <laughs> can just uh, 
broadcast them on a lightly prepared seedbed before a good rain. And the weight of the rain and the water and the pounding of the rain will, will get those seeds deep enough into the ground where they'll germinate. Um, so I did that. I, we, we really hustled some really hot days to get those seed in the ground before uh, a rare good storm came through. And uh, they actually turned out pretty darn good. Um, one of the things you do have to look for is, is your uh, – you have to give them ample amount of fertilizer. So – Brassicas love nitrogen. I put pure nitrogen uh, down and a lot of it, about 200 pounds per acre, um, down for, for these things. And, and the areas that I maybe missed or was a little light with the fertilizer definitely came in lighter with the brassicas. And the areas that I really pounded it, um, man, I had like a, it, it looked like a, a salad bar from Ruby Tuesdays out there, you know, just <laughs> big, lush green leaves and bulbs and and uh um they really didn't get touched much until it started to get cold which this year i was able to hunt late season so i got to see the utilization of these deer finally kicked into to to eating these plots especially the turnips the beans are all gone and uh you know it's not it, it my efforts were not a failure by any means so right all right so so now 2015 is over, right? We, we've talked a little bit about what you've done for food plots for the, you know, the 2016 season, but I want to talk about entry and exit strategy for your stand locations and maybe some adjustments that you made. Like long story short, what did you learn from a stand location perspective on this property? And what did you do before this year started to make adjustments to what you learned? Um, I really did some serious scouting um, once I got once I knew I was gonna you know assign the lease and I had access to it for the following year um, right away I did some serious uh, late winter early spring scouting just to understand the property better understand where the deer bedding where, where are the main trails and um, realize maybe areas that I thought were were um, prime bedding areas for does, you know, where are those really at and, and, and vice versa, uh, finding where some of these, uh, bucks like to bed and the does and the bucks like to bed in different areas for the most part. If, if, if the habitat in the property allows it, it's always a case by case. You know, if you're in a suburban area where there's not much cover, um, you're going to have deer bedding and living on top of each other. On the other hand, if you're in open, open ag, you know, um, a lot of country, open open country. Um, what I found is that these does were bedding a lot closer. Does will take the preferred bedding uh, tighter to the food sources. Uh, the bucks are going to take the kind of the 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 pickings after that on where to bed. And quite frankly, these mature bucks just don't want to be bothered. They're like old men. And they don't want to be in that kind of social circle of a bunch of does around them and younger bucks and whatnot. They want to be recluses. And and I was able to pinpoint uh, three dynamite, no doubt, buck bedding areas on this property that were literally, if you would, if you would look where on the map or draw where I kind of where I my access routes, how I cruised around the property, whether I'm checking cameras or or getting from one end of the farm to the other, um, all of these bedding areas that I found with bucks, and I, when I say buck bedding area, giant bed, 
five, six, seven or more big rubs all next to each other in a small room. I mean, a no doubt area where a big, big dude is hanging. These were all the farthest away. If you triangulated them uh, from where I was accessing. So that kind of got me thinking, I need to start looking at other places and, and getting creative with how I'm getting into um, and hunting closer to maybe where the, these, these big guys are, are, are living. So that kind of led to one specific stand that we'll talk more about when, you know, with pork, um, hanging one stand this summer that, that, uh, gave me a, a pretty epic encounter with them. Um, and it was an area that I never attempted to hunt last year. Um, uh, and it, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the, the most important time, almost more important than hunting season, which sounds silly, I learned the most, those handful of walks that I took deep into cover um, all over the farm in March or April. Uh, you can learn so much that that um, that time of year. And if I was to buy a property or try to find another property to, to hunt, um, you're way, way ahead of the game. You're almost a year behind if you get on at any past any, any time past the growing season because all the evidence is laid out for you in that late winter of how the deer used the property, um, you know, throughout hunting season. So that was like the biggest thing I learned and, and, and it, I adjusted how I access certain, uh, certain deeper, um, stand locations. I adjusted stand locations. I added a good bit. Um, and I was able to have more action packed rut hunts this year, no doubt. Saw a lot of bucks, um, because of those adjustments. Okay. Yeah. So, so it, from, from a terrain perspective, talk about your stand locations and what's, where these specific stand locations were at. Okay. Um, well, I'm trying to, I don't have my glasses on. I'm like looking, I'm straining my eyes to look on the other <laughs> end. The, the map of my farm where I, I've got all my magnets laid out where my stands are. Um, one area that comes to mind <clears throat> is an area that I discovered this year um, that I call Dark Hollow. And Dark Hollow is a 14-acre if you would if you would trace out that kind of chunk of timber. It's not a draw. It's 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 basically a kind of one block of timber on the property that's got a, a beautiful creek. A uh, little ditch running through it. Um, it's pasture bottom, so the cows were all over that creek bottom, eating all the lush green growth that was coming up. Um, and then from that creek bottom, uh, one side is this nasty, big, thick CRP field. That's the good CRP that we like as whitetail hunters. And then the other side is, I would say, after my winter scouting the thickest part of the farm from a briar and brush perspective. Um, you walked through it with me, which we'll get yeah. to, but, um, dark hollow, um, is, uh, 14 acres. And where I decided to pinpoint one of my stands there was, um, on the, on basically the top point of one of these little ridges or, or, or knolls. It's not really a ridge, like extending really, really far out, but the opposite side of it is high pasture ground on the neighbors, and then it it basically comes off that field and it gets into the timber, 
and you got these little bumps that extend out that are separated by some pretty nasty little draws and, and you know ditches or draws and uh, you got two or three of these knolls that come out and it gives a nice little role and in, in diversity from a terrain perspective uh, with um, with this 14 acre patch that I call Dark Hollow. So one of the stands that that, that I hung this year. Um, you basically access it through the creek, and I'm walking in the creek trying to conceal as much of my body as possible, even though it seems like these little cow – the creeks and cow pastures, for some reason, they wind like a snake. So instead of me walking 100 yards, it seems like I'm walking 200 yards because I'm going around every single curve. But I wanted to do that to conceal my sight, to conceal my sound, and to conceal my scent. Um 14 acres is not much, so I'm accessing it really late at night. And then this stand is basically the way I access is through the creek, up a draw, which was a little bit difficult because I didn't clean it out this past year. And then I just pop up. That kind of takes me up to the top, and I, I pop up, and there's my there's my stand. Um, and, and my goal was basically to try to intercept these deer that were coming down off another hill, pinching in between the CRP, the creek, and then this this knoll that I'm sitting on. There's just a lot of change right there, and it seems like the, the, the trails and the deer I've seen was right in the middle of, of where that the, all that diversity was. So I was excited about that stand, and, and I ended up running into Pork that um, uh, my first sit in there. He was uh, the, the 10th buck that I saw uh, by 9.30 in the morning on November 4th. Um, so uh, that's one, I guess, you know, you're asking me about all these different stand locations. That's one that was really strategic that I, I, I set in the summertime specifically for a, a rut scenario. And I didn't even go near it. I didn't run cameras nearby, nothing. I just went in there blind when the conditions were right. Okay. So, so, but basically what you're saying is you took action between 2015 and 2016 to, change up some stand locations um, to put yourself in a, a better position, right? Yeah, absolutely. Another stand that comes <clears throat> comes to mind is one I call Veteran. It's funny because I uh, I hunted this, this other stand. It's on the north face, and the way I accessed that one was, again, through the main creek of the farm, and I, I literally climbed up this, like, this, the, the edge of this, there's like this big wall that is uh, where the, the the stream just is eroded over time, but there's this one place where it's almost like a a, a ladder that Mother Nature made that I was able to kind of cl- climb up and sit on a uh, uh, sit right on the edge of that, hunting kind of the, the the downwind side of this this bedding area. Well, I found after sitting there a couple times last year that I just what I mean it was it was in a good spot, but it wasn't the tree. So. So this year, um, what I did based off those observations is I I went up farther where I was seeing kind of the consistent movement. Nothing stuck out at me like on the map from why why that specific trail was there. But for some reason, those deer just were comfortable coming around that, that hillside. And when I, I adjusted the stand location, only like – 35 to 40 yards from the first stand last year i was hanging i was hanging it and there was this old rusty uh, uh cat eye or or, or uh, fire tack that somebody clearly hung there you know he clearly hung a stand years and years ago um so i called it veteran you know from thinking maybe a, an old veteran bow hunter hung hung a stand there 
uh, before and, and maybe I, I found the tree that I need to be in. So um, that adjustment was awesome. I just didn't have the right buck come past me, but uh, three or four different four year, a handful of different three or four year olds that that I'm excited the uh, excited about with the future. They came past and, and I and I passed them a bunch of times, but um, the right one didn't come past. But it was a good move, you know, the adjustment that I made okay. based off learning and then you know and scouting and adjusting. Okay, so. Talk to us about your first encounter from the stand with pork in 2016. Yeah, uh, November 4th, we had a, I believe it was either an east or a north-northeast. It was, it was, the wind was coming from the east, and, and it was a perfect opportunity to sit in that stand that I call the abyss, uh, this, one of the stands that, that I hung and I just spoke about. I call it the abyss because it's deep into the farm, deep into Dark Hollow, and, uh, um, I got in there nice and early and, uh, the wind is, is, is perfect. The wind is coming basically off that big CRP field across the Creek and, and in, in my face and, and off the back of me, kind of no man's land, perfect setup. And, and, uh, I was kind of frosty that morning. It was just a beautiful morning to be a bow hunter. And, um, I saw all kinds of movement basically on the Creek bottom and then on that they were cruising that CRP field, which there was no way I could get a stand in there. But, um, I watched nine bucks cruise past and some were from a good distance away. They weren't all at 30 or 40 yards. Um, but I watched them, uh, come past and, and there was just no way that they were going to smell me. So, um, around 10 o'clock, the wind completely changed. I did 180 degrees and started to come from the west. And I knew, man, I was putting some time in there at the end of October into early November. I needed to get home and catch up on some maps and catch up with my family a little bit. So I had plans of leaving. And I'm like, man, this is the perfect time. It's 10 o'clock. I'd like to stay a little bit later. But since the wind switched, it's, this is my cue to get out of here. So I'm looking forward to another hunt there. Um, as I'm putting the rope on my bow to, to lower it down. Uh, I, I look over and, and basically just down over the hill coming around the bend is pork. And I wasn't, um, surprised that I saw him there based off of a lack of trail cam pictures in other parts of the farm. And then some really, really late middle of the night pictures, the abyss, this set just kind of made sense that I was maybe going to see him and get lucky and run into him here. Unfortunately, the wind was going right in the direction of where he was heading, and he basically beat me to the punch. Um, I panicked, and I, I tried to grunt at him and, and spin him, but that just didn't uh, really work out. He, he wasn't going to turn completely around and, and me, you know, avoid getting my scent. So he either caught my scent or he caught me trying to put my grunt tube back into my pocket, and he, he knew something wasn't right. Um, so he bu uh, jumped across the creek and then kind of looked back at me again, and then he just continued to cruise that creek bottom with his head down like a, you know, like a, like a bird dog. So I knew that I boogered him up a little bit, but not uh, so bad that I blew him out of there. Um, that was, that was my first encounter, um, which kind of leads into the next, you know, handful of days, um, for me setting up on him again. So did, did you, you went home, you went back home and did you hunt that next day right away or did you take a day or two off? 
No, I, I, I took a day off. Remember I called you and yeah. you and I talked about it and I wanted to get your opinion on, you know, if I would have had the same encounter in early October with this deer, I think it would have been a lot different outcome than in the middle of the rut where they have one thing on their mind. And uh, you basically had the same thing. What I was thinking was, I mean, you got to get back in the saddle there and, and uh, you know, give them a give them a little bit of time and, and uh, try to try to uh, work your way back in. And that's exactly what I did. I, I, uh, I took the next 36 hours off. Uh, so the rest of that day, uh, the day after, which would be November 5. And then uh, um, I went right back in November 6th in the morning. We had a south we had a southeast wind and I was on the northwest part of Dark Hollow. Uh, uh, that would have been, um, you know, that was going to be another fresh sit and uh, immediately saw him uh, again. It was uh, like seven o'clock in the morning. He came, came up out of this ditch that was leading right up to my stand. And then he, like big deer do, just turned, you know, out of bow range and circled me and he never caught my wind, but, um, he wasn't interested in the grunt and he, um, just seemed like he was kind of doing his own thing and not really looking for a fight or anything. So, uh, that was encounter number two, literally about 300 yards from where, um, from where I saw him the first time. So right away, the gear started going in my head that, Am I just getting, is it by coincidence that I'm seeing him here in Dark Hollow or, or is this one of his main areas or, or betting areas? I put out a Facebook post to see what other people's opinions were and the question was basically about, you know, how much does a, a, a buck's betting area matter to him during the rut? There was an awesome conversation that went through a lot of, a lot of different comments and feedback, but my opinion on it is that um, this deer – this is this area, whether it's a, a, a primary bedding area or not, at that time of year or at least that week, he was comfortable there. And maybe that's where he was going to bring a doe back or that's where he was kind of staging up to go find does. Um, but he, he was there and he was comfortable. So um, I sat the rest of the day, dark to dark, never did see him again. Um, and then the wind was going to be out of the west the next day. So uh, – I didn't have. I had two stands hung at the ends of Dark Hollow, and, and a west wind was really not good for either one of them. So my goal was that I was going to hunt the abyss again, the, the first stand that I encountered him on. And uh, if the wind was weird, or, or if it just wasn't working out there, I had another set with me that I was packing in to make a, a, a morning adjustment if if I didn't feel like it was a good spot to be in. So. Uh, it's about five o'clock in the morning, um, walking down the Creek to head to the abyss. And I, I, a couple times in my life, I've felt, uh, intuition. It hit me like a bolt of lightning and I've always tried to trust my gut. It, you know, has worked out for me pretty well. And so far, and, uh, basically, you know, something told me that I need to just hang a stand right then and there in this little opening on this creek bottom it was it almost felt like a big family room it was like this because uh, this the, the the creek bottom is pretty thick and this is just a nice opening and there was a crossing there and uh i remember looking up into the skylight like the moon it was a full moon and it, i could see this beautiful split perfect in a tree about 30 yards to my left and so i hung a stand right then and there 
um, trusted my gut, got up in there. Wasn't even sure about my shooting lanes or if I was going to have them or not. Uh, luckily, I was like, man, this, uh, I, I lucked out. It was a good spot uh, to be able to sh- get a crack at one. And, uh, and that was, that was encounter number three with him. Um, he would have been the, uh, it was the sixth deer that I saw by eight thirty, And, uh, he came right down off the hill with, with the doe, uh, following a doe and, and he wasn't chasing her. He was actively tending her. Um, they, they were, you know, he found her and they were going to breed for the next, however many hours or whatnot or days. And, um, they were angling out of, um, they're angling out of dark hollow. My wind is kind of heading towards where they're, where they're heading. And, and I'm thinking this is, we're going to be ruined again here. Um, but that doe button hooked and came right into that opening and, and, uh, um, uh, he knew something wasn't quite right. But, uh, basically when that doe dropped down into the ditch and he lost sight of her, he couldn't handle that. So, uh, he came, he, he, he headed, uh, basically right into that opening and when I, I tried to draw on him before he hit that opening and he caught sight of me and he basically just stared up at me and I held draw for a really long time. I don't really know how long it was. It obviously, it felt like a minute. I'm sure it wasn't that, but I was, uh, I was getting pretty worked up. And, uh, when he hit that opening, I just didn't bury the pin on him. I let it fly and I hit him. What I thought at the time was center mass. So my gut was like, Oh, I, I, I shot. He basically bounced. And he leapt three or four times up this flat that he came off of, and he looked back at me, and I immediately saw blood coming out of him pretty darn good, and it was bright red blood. And I thought that it was basically true center mass, so I'm thinking liver hit, and um, I watched him walk away and and, and, and not go down. I, I never heard him go down. So I sat there for two hours listening, and finally, I realized that I'm not going to hear this deer go down. It was so quiet. So I, I crept out of there. I grabbed my arrow, didn't look for any blood. And then I basically called you and Casey. And, uh, you know, from there, we, we went and tried to recover him. So on time constraints here. I know we're we going late. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, we don't, you don't find the buck. Okay. We yep. follow, you know, we had really good blood right off, you know, right off the bat. And then like oftentimes do trickle follow find trickle you know and then nothing so and by the way i also want to you know kind of on a on a side note here you talked about how thick it was when if i was to if i was god and i could design a piece of property that would hold good deer it's like these trees were designed to have tree stands in them and the cover is like six foot tall thorn bushes that's what's inside of this this cattle pasture. So it's very hard to walk through, especially when you're trying to follow a blood trail. And it's just nasty, and it is it it is awesome. It's an awesome property. Yeah, this specific area is super thick. You and I were on our hands and knees looking for blood, literally on our hands and knees, trying to avoid uh, hell's thorns that are that yeah. are so. If, you know, if Satan could design a garden. This is what it would look like, you know? Right. So long story short, we, or you, you don't, you don't find him, but there is a silver lining. Uh, you, you know, you were able to get a trail camera picture of him a couple days later. Um, and it looked like he was like, looked like he was fine. What, what kind of thought was going through your head at that point? Once you realize 
it was not vital, and he he at, at the at the time was still alive. Yeah, so I knew right away after seeing the trail cam pictures, I hit him in no man's land, basically backstrap, superficial wound, and he's rolling in daylight 12 days later. I got multiple daylight pictures of him on different parts of the farm. He's looking for does. So that made me feel good that he wasn't just dead somewhere, you know, in some part of the farm, and, and I was, wasn't able to recover him, and it was just all for not, not, you know, and uh, made me feel good he was still cruising, but after those handful of pictures, um, I got to I got to hunt a handful of times, not too much. Never did run into him again, and then and then basically the, the pictures he just dropped off the map. I mean, no trail cam pictures of him at all um, come shotgun season. And uh, at the time, we were just making a ton of maps for the big Christmas rush, and I basically just left the farm until well, a couple days before. Um, uh, a couple days before Christmas time, um, basically went down there just to assess who was alive and, you know, if he was alive and where he was at and, and to make a game plan for whenever we came back from Christmas break. Right. So he didn't, he, he didn't show up on trail camera. He has not yet showed up on trail camera, right? Uh, as of today, no. No. Nope. Okay. So as any hunter should do, you know, you you had put put such focus, so much focus on one specific deer. Talk about your 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 I guess your goal change or your um, I guess a switch of mentality going into the late season. Yeah, so I um, had dreams of you know coming to Iowa and starting history with deer and eventually catching up with like you know one of these big big dogs and whatnot. And this was encounter number. Uh, 10 with him or nine or 10 with him that I arrowed him and it didn't work out. And I, I I realized after stepping back and talking to myself a little bit that I need to kind of broaden my expectations and maybe just be happy with going after any mature buck, regardless of rack size, um, regardless if I know him or not. And, uh, you know, get some fulfillment out of the season and put some meat in the freezer. It's been two years since I I've put a deer down. So, um, it felt good to kind of put him on the back burner. If I would have run it, you know, if he would have appeared, I would have been elated to, to get another crack at him. But, um, I was content with, you know what, if, a, if, a, if, a a deer that I think is four years old, uh, plus preferably five or five or older, um, I'm going to be happy, uh, you know, taking a crack at him. And, and that's what happened. Uh, I basically checked cameras and uh before christmas time and i had a deer showing up um that was not a not a big racked deer Uh, he had some pretty good mass to him but he was definitely uh, in uh, in that upper age class and he was coming consistently into one of those plots that we planted and and uh it was kind of like man when i come back from christmas break i'm gonna go after this deer and and i came back and i i was anxious to check cameras and sure enough he was he was just on a great bedding the feeding pattern and he was comfortable coming out in daylight so i got oh you know between christmas and and um new year's i got him uh two or three times coming out in the evening to to feed on those on those brassicas that we planted so um what i ended up doing was basically taking out my bow and muzzleloader i'm a i'm a bow hunter at heart i I love i love bow hunting uh but i was okay with getting a crack, you know, shooting a deer with a muzzleloader if I needed to. And, uh, when he came out, it was three, I, I went in on, uh, New Year's, 
New Year's Eve, uh, just a couple days ago, and he appeared uh, with a couple does at about 3.30 he came out. And uh, I knew I was going to have plenty of daylight, and, and the way he was heading, there was no doubt I was going to get a crack at him with the bow. And like big deer do, they completely change up on you. And uh, uh, he basically did a 90-degree turn out of the plot, and he was going to start circling around the draw of where I was hunting, where my wind was going. And uh, I decided to, to um, it was now or never to take him with the muzzle loader, and, and I did, and I, I, I put him down right, right then and there. So it was uh, very fulfilling to, to be able to finally uh, tag a, a, a deer here in, in Iowa after two years in a, in a pretty wild journey. And um, I'm not really a, a big fan of saying it's been a tough season or it's been you know, a lot of ups and downs, um, or, or there's really no negativity out there. I mean, yeah, you don't, you don't get the deer that you're going after, but, and we're hunting and we're fortunate to be hunting. And, and, uh, it was just, uh, it was, it was fulfilling to, to finally be able to, to, you know, get a deer down and, and recover him with one of my good friends that I, that I met here. And, and, um, you know, we, we drug him out. And then the next day I hollered at you and, and we spent the morning taking some epic photos that, you know, I'll, I'll have for forever um, that, that you gave me, Dan. So, um, that's kind of how, you know, that's where we're at now. Awesome. Well, what was it? I mean, that moment you use the word fulfilling, but there has to be something a little bit more than that. I mean, you, you gave up everything. You took a risk, you took your wife, you moved her to a state that was foreign to you guys. You started a family while you were here. And then for, for really one reason, and that was, you know, yes, you, you, you had a business, but you could have, you could have Huntera in any state. So but you came here, you came to Iowa to hunt. So what was it like, you know, shooting a buck, you know, not necessarily pork, something that, you know, a buck that you had history with really, but a buck, an Iowa buck, a, a, the reason you moved to Iowa for, um, I would just say I've, it was one of the more, you know, uh, more intense moments in my life when I felt truly alive because it, it all kind of, uh, everything that you just spoke about came to my top of mind right away. And, uh, uh, I just kind of reflected for a little while by myself on like, man, it, it, it's been a ride to get here. And, uh, this is, I, I truly believe like this is where I, where I belong and, and where, I'm going to get a lot of, of happiness out of life for a lot of different reasons. And, and, uh, this was just kind of, um, seems like almost the beginning, you, you know what I mean? It, uh, even though it, it, it isn't from a calendar standpoint, uh, it was, it was fulfilling. It was, uh, rewarding. Um, it was new and, uh, I don't know. I'm just, it, I was happy, really happy. Right. So, um, I, 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 I pulled up, pulled out the old iPhone and FaceTime my dad to recover, you know, he rec I recovered the deer with him, even though it was a bummer he wasn't with me, but it was cool. Um, I walked up to the deer w with him on the phone and, and, um, I did the same with, with my wife and, and my son, Jack. And, uh, it, it was, it was awesome. It was a great moment. And, and then I really wanted to, you know, lately uh, these deer I've been shooting, I get them mounted or, you know, I've got some mounted deer, but the pictures are, 
I've had I've been fortunate to be in the situation where I've got a good photographer around these last handful of deer that I've shot, and man, I'm just having a good a set of good pictures is really important um, to me at least. I think it's an important part of the memory, and uh, I was really glad that you came down and, and helped me and spent so much time with me taking taking some great photos. So uh, yeah, it's been it's been all good, and I'm I'm lucky. I've got one. I've got a I still have a bow tag, so. I'm going to go out a couple more times and I'm going to try to shoot some does and maybe get lucky and, and, and run into a, a good buck with my bow as well and kind of keep this, keep this train rolling now that I got a deer on the ground. Awesome. Well, I mean, so what's, I mean, what's the plan for 2017? I know your season's not over yet. You still have a little bit of bow hunting to do, but I mean, do you already have any ideas of what you're going to do to your property or, um, I don't know, to, to improve your, your chances even more. Yeah. There's some things I'm going to do to the property from an access perspective and from the, you know, the food plots and whatnot. But one thing I'd want to just bring out right in the open, I think it's important. Um, I, uh, realized that I have a a pretty bad case of of target panic right now in, in my bow hunting career. And, uh, this is, you know, hitting pork, um, in no, on November 7th and not recovering him. That is the third big deer in a row now that I've hit and not recovered. And I feel terrible about that. Um, but I think that it's kind of like what you and I were saying, like, you know, alcoholics, the, the, the first step in recovery is realizing and recognizing and being open that you have a problem. Right. Well, it's the same when it comes to right now in, in my career in my life i can shoot lights out in the yard um but that is not that is not uh the same experience and simulation as uh when you're about to to kill an animal and i take that really seriously it's pretty intense when you kill an animal at least in my eyes and uh i think a lot of that goes through my head um and i i don't focus uh whenever it's about to go down so um it's resulted in some missed opportunities for me, some wounded deer. I'm not proud of that, but I'm going to do everything I can leading into 2017, um, leading into the 2017 off season, into the season to, to become uh, a, a better shot and a, and a better killer with my bow. And what what I'm going to do, um, and I'm going to try to document it just on you know social media, my own personal you know, hunting content, uh, I'm going to basically throw away uh, my trigger release and I'm going to go to a true surprise release in the off season uh, to try to reteach myself how to shoot a bow. Um, I have been confident and I can shoot groups out to 60 or 70 yards. Will I ever shoot a whitetail that far? No, but at 30, 40 yards when I got a big deer in front of me, I want to be able to make it count and, uh, I, I realized that I need to change the mechanics and the mentality that I have uh, when I've got a deer in front of me. So I'm going to shoot with a um, with a surprise release uh, and try to basically reteach myself new form. And I'm also going to just try to, in general, shoot more animals with my bow. I'm going to turkey hunt with my bow this year, and I'm going to try to shoot uh, two or three does right off the bat whenever I can, uh, whether it's in another state or or, or here in Iowa. As soon as I have the opportunity to, I'm going to try to put some meat in the, in the freezer and, and, and get some experience arrowing 
uh, ethically another animal. And hopefully all of that preparation will, will put me in a better state of mind whenever I've got that, that buck of my dreams in front of me uh, that I've got to crack at. You know what I mean? Right, right. Hey, man, I'm in the same boat with you. I think I, I suffer with some form of target panic as well. And uh, I think I might, you know, after hearing you talk about this, I think I'm going to be, you know, hi, my name's Dan Johnson and I have target panic <laughs> type of uh, therapy. And uh, I might be doing the same thing as you and, and going to uh, uh, back tension release as well and, and trying to reteach myself overall becoming a better archer. Yeah, absolutely. I've been following a guy um, by the name of John Dudley on on social media, and uh, he's a world class archer, but he's also a bow hunter. He's from Iowa, which is pretty cool. So um, he addresses a lot of this with target panic, and and uh, uh, I've been shooting a bow for a good while in my life, but he's kind of said or pointed out that really all archers or bow hunters at one point or another in their career will most likely experience target panic uh maybe there are different severity levels of it some people flat out can't bring the pin up on their target which is severe um me it's more at the moment of truth i'm blowing it um but what i'm going to try to do is is learn as much tactics from him and other archers that i know uh and try to just become a better archer in front of people by myself in the woods outside of the woods and i'm okay with it i, I think that uh, modern um you know, the, I guess, mainstream hunting industry or hunting, uh, content producers, um, maybe it's not shown quite as much as, as, as reality. And it's, you know, as we all know, hunting television is not necessarily a, a good reflection of, of, of reality at times, but, um, I think it's important to be transparent and, um, recognize that it, it, it can happen to anybody and it's not because of a lack of work, but, and you can always work at it to be to become better. So um, my goals are are are, are I'm going to literally work as hard as possible shooting uh, shooting again, and and we'll we'll see how it goes. You know. Well, Ben, good luck. You know, figuring that out. And uh, huge thank you for coming on the show today, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a ton, Dan. And there you have it. The first podcast of 2017 is in the books huge shout out to ben for taking time out of his day to come on the show and chat about his season huge shout out to the partners exodus outdoor gear and deer lab thank you guys very much for your support an even bigger louder shout out to all of the listeners out there the the people who have taken time to download this podcast and listen to it thank you guys very much if you haven't already uh, go to iTunes, leave a review about this podcast. Also, check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, I have a, a full social media platform. And now, if you guys want to win the free subscription to Deer Lab and you want to win a free trail camera from Exodus Outdoor Gear, here's what you have to do. First, Go to the Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page that mentions this podcast and share it on your Facebook page, okay? Then you need to go to Exodus Outdoor Gear and you have to make sure you like that page and then comment Nine Finger Sent Me. Then 
go to Deer Lab's Facebook page and like that page and comment Nine Fingers Sent Me on their Facebook page as well. By doing those three things, that will have you entered into the drawing and I will pick one name at random sometime later this week or next week. I'm really not sure yet. But uh, that is how you win. So go and do those things. Guys, thank you very much. I hope everybody has a great week. And if you do get in a tree stand, wear your damn safety harness.